Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live from McGregor, Iowa, as I continue to work remotely with my family this summer. I am really excited to welcome Matthew Einan, who is the Vice President for College Advancement at Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, to the show today. Matthew has over 30 years of advancement uh, experience, or just, just about 30 years of experience. He has helped uh, FNM launch their biggest campaign in college history, which is on pace to, pandemic aside, hit the $200 million goal by this coming December in 2021. And so with all of that said, Matthew, welcome. Thank you, Brent. Good to be with you. And I hope you and your family are doing well in, in, uh, in, in these times. We are, uh, we are feeling very blessed, all things considered, and it has been a terrific summer of reconnecting with, with friends and family, which we expect will continue. Uh, but the show must go on, and it's been fun to be able to get to know folks like you and introduce um, your perspective, your career path to our audience, which is comprised of advancement professionals all over the country and actually all over the world. I got to give a, a shout out. We had some, some folks from Scotland uh, shoot us a note the other day saying how much they're enjoying the, uh, the show, which has, been, which has been really fun. And one of the things I've been doing to introduce our guests is actually to go way beyond what we might typically talk about. Uh, in, a, in a case conference or in a job interview, but actually go back to your own uh, college experience. And I'd love to know a little bit more about junior year of high school, Maddie, uh, yeah. and, uh, and what led you to go to Dickinson College and, and just sort of the highlights of that experience. Sure. Um, thank you. Happy to, happy to, to start there and, and see where it takes us. So I am the son of two school teachers uh, who dedicated their entire lives and their careers to an independent school in Danbury, Connecticut, which is where I grew up. So I guess in some ways, education is the family business in our family. Um, not everybody in my family, but certainly my mom and dad uh, were school teachers. And um, I grew up in that environment. My, uh, and was my that, mom, a, can I ask, was that, a, was that a day school or a boarding school? It, uh, well, that's an interesting question, Brent. Um, it's now a day school, but when I grew up there, it was a boarding school. So it has, it has evolved. It's a, it's a great school, a great independent school uh, called Worcester School, W-O-O-S-T-E-R uh, in Danbury, Connecticut. Uh, the same namesake as uh, the College of Worcester in Worcester, Ohio, uh, General David oh. Worcester, um, who has uh, roots in Ohio, but also uh, roots in the Revolutionary War in, in Connecticut. So uh, Worcester was an independent school that I grew up at. And as I said, uh, my folks were school teachers. Um, my uh, French can I, was my, can I ask, language. So my, yeah, my co-founder at Evertrue, uh, one of my co-founders, Jesse Bardo, grew up on campus. His parents were teachers. Uh, his father at, at Phillips Andover Academy, sure. his mother at the Pike School. And he, he referred to himself as a fact brat. I don't know yeah. if that's... Right. The sure. uh, technical uh, description, but is it fair to say you were a fact rat? Can we say it is that? fair to say, correct. Yes. Okay. Um, and and I don't know. There may be uh, many colleagues I still work with to this day that um, would would still describe me as a brat. So um, <laughs> ho hopefully, hopefully not. Hopefully, I've hopefully I've outgrown that moniker to some degree. But yes, that was uh, you know it was a fairly common moniker for all of us that grew up as sons and daughters of members of the faculty and staff and. Uh, in the case of, of my two parents, uh, my dad served the institution for 51 years and my mom for, I think, 43. Uh, my dad, including, um, you know, not just being a teacher there, but he ended up serving as head of school for, uh, for a number of years. Um, I think he was head of school for eight years and 
um, served in lots of other administrative roles, but then left the role of headmaster and went back into the classroom, which I think was his true calling and true passion and concluded his career back in the English and history classroom where, where he had spent a lot of time. Um, but the, the, you know, the reason that's important is um, number one, French was my first language. So uh, my mom is uh, to this day, a French citizen, a French national, um, uh, met my dad. Uh, that's a story for another podcast, I guess. But uh, so uh, French was my first language. And so I grew up with a very international uh, experience in my life, uh, number one. Uh, number two, uh, my mom is uh, educated in France, but has her master's degree from Trinity College, a great liberal arts institution in Hartford, Connecticut. My dad is a Williams College grad, another one of our nation's leading liberal arts colleges. So I think growing up on an independent school campus, which some might describe as a, you know, a smaller scale liberal arts environment, growing up as the son of two school teachers, growing up as uh, the son of two liberal arts educated parents, um, a place like Dickinson College was a place that um, I think really resonated for me in all sorts of ways. And I am a very, very proud graduate of Dickinson. I love the place very, very much. Um, remember my experiences there, uh, you know, very deeply. And I'm also now uh, a very proud past parent of a recent Dickinson graduate. So um, the place means a lot to me and it holds a very, very special place in my heart. I'm uh, really proud of my affiliation with that great school. So that's my path to Dickinson. I love it. There's so much there. And I will sit, start by saying at least 90% of my guests, most of whom are serving in leadership roles at various institutions, public, private, big, small, you name it. Most of them have some story about stumbling into the world of advancement. My sense is in an independent school context with your father eventually serving as, as headmaster, uh, but just being in that community from basically, it sounds like your earliest childhood. Uh, not fair to say you stumbled into this and you probably had exposure to alumni and development work even before college, which is rare. Yeah, no, I think uh, that's true for sure. Uh, it, you know, it was sort of washing over me probably unbeknownst to me, right? So uh, because my parents had been there so very, very long and were so dedicated to that institution, I got to know many graduates. I got to know uh, folks that were current students that then came back as alumni many, many years later. Um, it was not uncommon for me to be running around on you know, various different big alumni uh, weekends and various different weekends, um, you know, meeting graduates that, that would uh, have reminded me of, of the mentorship that my dad or mom had provided to them. So it was sort of all around me all the time, certainly growing up um, and, and was a part of just sort of my normal way of life, I guess, um, including during the time that, you know, my dad and, and uh, well, by association, my mom, but my dad was head of school living in the headmaster's house during that part of my life, um, you know, board of trustee meetings and dinners and other events that were happening at the headmaster's house, which happened uh, pretty much weekly, uh, were all aspects of what certainly you know, um, are, are part of an advancement career ultimately yeah. that, uh, that I remember fondly. So um, all I love that it. Was you were building, a, building rapport uh, with trustees, uh, you know, in your early childhood and teen years is a good, good training ground, no doubt. And uh, can I just ask, cause I don't want to forget, you know, I've known you for some time. Yep. And part right. of the reason I love doing this podcast is in spite of that, you know, you oftentimes go sort of surface level 
never would have guessed that French was your first language, as I imagine most don't. Right. And so now I've got to ask, have you had opportunities in your advancement career where all of a sudden that has come in handy, either directly through, uh, you know, the solicitation or relationship building work or just as a pleasant surprise? Anything yeah. stand out? Yeah. Well, thank you for asking. Yeah. So it was my first language. I'm still fluent to this day. My mom is the only member of the maternal side of my family who lives in the U.S. So wow. the rest of my maternal family is all in the Pyrenees Mountains in France. And so um, that often comes as quite a surprise to colleagues that wouldn't necessarily assume that about me, um, including, uh, you know, probably on some level, you, Brett, we've known each other for a while. So yeah. I would say that um, a couple of things. Number one, that experience has come into play in my advancement sort of work um, in a few different ways, uh, sort of indirect, direct ways, I guess. I, I have not worked directly with prospects in France and used my French language as a direct part of my advancement work, right? Soliciting prospects in, in French and working with them directly. That may still happen. And, and I, you know, I expect it, it may, you know, maybe a cool thing that happens someday. Um, indirectly, a couple of things have happened. One is that our current president at FNM is an extraordinary leader uh, named Barbara Altman. And President Altman is uh, a scholar of medieval French. And so it turns out that she and I both have a, you know, a passion for the French language and a passion for the French culture in ways that come out of her scholarship and come out of my life and, and my family's connection to France. And so when I was, uh, when I met her for the first time, she was a candidate for this job. I said hello to her in French, which was for her a really cool thing. And it immediately sort of created this, um, this interesting connection and this bond, which um, indirectly is a big part of what matters in advancement work when you're working with senior leaders like a president or others. And so for me and for President Altman, that's been a really cool part of our working relationship to, to have that. Um, the other thing that's happened is that um, I grew up around amazing French cooking and French, uh, you know, sort of cuisine um, because of my family's, uh, you know, sort of uh, roots in France and the fact that every Sunday uh, when I was in France, which happened every year until I was about 18, we spent time as a family around that table um, and the size of that lunch every Sunday could be anywhere from, you know, six or eight to 12 or 14 or more, depending on who was there. And so I grew up around that and have um, also in my life background, some time as an apprentice chef in a really terrific French restaurant. Um, so I did that for about four years um, during my last year of high school and about three years of college, because I thought that after Dickinson, I might go to the Culinary Institute uh, because of my passion for, for cooking and um, and so the other way that this sort of background has come up is that some of my colleagues at FNM and even before at Boston College found out that, that I had this sort of um, part of my life. And I don't think they fully believed it. So they're like, yeah, we're not so sure he can really cook. And so I sort of challenged my team here at FNM a number of years ago that if we met our fiscal year goals, then I would cook an amazing French meal the way my grandmother would for our family. And I would do it for the whole advancement division, which, you know, is a big number of people. And so I've done that many, many years. I've gone, you know, kind of into the kitchen here at FNM, spent the entire day cooking and then uh, sort of presenting a meal to all of my colleagues. So if you believe that food is love, 
um, it's probably the best way I can demonstrate my great affection and respect and admiration for our team that I could cook a big French meal for everybody. So I've done that multiple yeah, times. I um, it's something I'm looking forward to doing this year now that COVID is over because we've missed it now for a couple of years as a result of COVID. So those are ways that it's fit. It's it, you know, kind of it's fit into my advancement career. That is so fun. I will say Ratatouille is a favorite among my boys. And that's about as close to French yeah. cooking uh, exposure that, that we've had as a group. But we do have aspirations to go to France. I've traveled Europe somewhat, never been to France. And so for me and for all of our uh, guests who will look at the uh, Fromer's Guide and go to all of the right. top spots. Uh, don't need your advice on those. Give us one place, one town, one thing off the beaten path that we all should consider if we get the opportunity to go to France. Yeah, I would strongly recommend that people go to the Pyrenees Mountains. And because it is my home and my family's home, I strongly encourage people to go to the beautiful city of Po, spelled P-A-U, down in the southwest corner of France, which is um, sort of the capital of the Pyrenees. It is the gateway city to the Pyrenees. And uh, from Po, you can do all kinds of amazing things going up into the Pyrenees Mountains. Um, you can go about an hour and 45 minutes east, and you can end up on one of the most beautiful little pieces of the East, you know, kind of the Atlantic uh, beachside. Um, there's an amazing beach community called Saint-Jean-de-Luz. And Saint-Jean-de-Luz is right on the Franco-Spanish border um, in the Basque region. And I would encourage you to go to Saint-Jean-de-Luz, which is um, an amazing, beautiful beach village. And it's worth a few days or a long weekend there um, in the Basque region of France. And so that part of France, that southwest corner of France, I would encourage everybody to put on an itinerary for at least uh, some of your time there. And is there a restaurant or two we should keep in mind when we do that? Uh, yes. When you go to, uh, to Poe, um, I'm, I'm digging back here in the memory banks. I've got a, I can picture it in my mind. I've eaten there so many times. Um, uh, well, my, my mom would probably be really disappointed that I, that I can't remember the name of the restaurant that we've frequented so often, but um, it's, it's, a, it's a it's a family I'll, I'll secret you know. right um, it's a family secret let us know yep. you know feel free to google it along the uh, yep. along the way uh, or 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 uh, or text a family member uh, to see if they can uh, they can they can share thank you that's an yep. amazing window into obviously what was a formative part of your uh, life and uh, and I also see that while you were at Dickinson you uh, did participate in the student phonathon which we have considered to be the gateway the gateway drug to advancement for uh, for a long time. Yeah. Um, I imagine you were ready to hit the ground running given some of what you shared as far as uh, just your experience working with being in a alumni and donor community from uh, your earliest days. Any uh, memories from that time that really stand out? Uh, because you didn't go directly, uh, at least my understanding is you didn't go directly into fundraising, right. um, even though you did have some of that experience directly uh, as a student. Yeah, no, great, great question. Thanks for asking, Brent. So the, I guess there were two things that I was a part of. Well, maybe three things, really. They're all sort of related that I was a part of as a Dickinson student that were kind of early, early steps into an advancement career. One is that I... Um, I was a student who uh, benefited from financial aid and uh, my Dickinson education was made possible, not just because my mom and dad helped to make it possible, but 
Dickinson offered me financial aid, uh, need-based financial aid that allowed me to be there. And um, uh, so that was a big, big part of uh, my Dickinson experience. My financial aid also came with a work-study job. And it turned out that my work-study job was in the development office. And so for, for three of my four years, my work-study job was working in the development office. That was the work-study assignment that, that I ended up uh, either uh, asking for or getting or some combination of both. And so I ended up working alongside a number of uh, folks who were professional advancement officers and development officers, alumni relations officers. And so that was really formative. That led me into the phonathon program because as a student employee, I learned about and helped to prep a lot of the, you know, the phonathon work that was going on. And that, um, you know, that was many years ago. That was in the, back in the days of, uh, you know, pin fed printers. That was back in the days of phonathon cards that kind of rolled off those pin fed printers that had to be uh, perfed and then torn apart and then reorganized and sorted. And uh, so I did all that work. And then I ended up, uh, you know, serving in the phonathon with a number of other student organizations that, um, that were part of the phonathon program. So um, I was part of a Greek organization and, and we participated um, in the phonathons. I was a student athlete for a couple of years and, and we participated in the phonathons. Um, and all of that, I guess, sort of also led me to be asked alongside a, a close friend and, and, and dear, dear classmate to serve as one of the co-chairs of the senior class campaign. So um, when I recruit leaders of our senior campaigns here at FNM, it's, um, you know, it, it's kind of a special memory as well, because I was the co-chair of our senior class campaign in my senior year at Dickinson. So all of those things were kind of, uh, I don't know, ingredients in what clearly has led me to my great uh, sort of experiences in my career. But before diving in and assuming various advancement leadership roles, I do have to ask you top memories as a regional sales manager for Mogul's Ski and Sun Tours. Yeah. Wow. You are, yeah, Brent, you and your uh, research team are good. You're going into the Wayback Machine. So, um, my, you know, I mentioned my family background. I was not one of those students that was, um, you know, was able to go off on some of the more exotic spring break trips that sometimes students might take for whatever reasons they take them. And, you know, my folks said, look, if you're interested in some sort of a exotic spring break, uh, that's fine. You'll, you'll need to self-fund your exotic spring break. Um, and so my senior year, I became aware of this company, Mogul Ski and Sun Tours, that would organize ski trips and uh, sun trips. They were mostly Caribbean destinations. And they were a company that was focused on the collegiate market, on the college and university market. And that was, that was all they did. They did not have any other group travel programs. So they ran extraordinary ski programs for ski clubs and other student groups that wanted to run ski trips, mostly ski clubs. And then they ran Caribbean destinations. And my senior year, I got in touch with them and said, how does this work? What, you know, what do your programs look like? How do you build, you know, your, your campus rep program? And they said, well, we talk to you, we interview you, we find out whether we think you would be a, a good representative of our company on your campus. And if we hire you, um, not a paid position really, if we hire you to represent moguls on your campus, you'll sell one of the trips, um, one of the destinations. And so I ended up selling the Barbados spring break trip for moguls. 
as a senior. And for every 20 trips that you sold as a campus rep, you got one free. And, uh, and I sold 50. So I got to go for free and my, uh, my roommate got to go for free. And 50 of us from Dickinson all went to Barbados for an extraordinary week. And tragically, unfortunately, and very, very tragically, I mean, there's a sad piece of the story. And that is that someone who worked for Moguls, who was a um, actually the brother, the older brother of one of the vice presidents from the company that I knew well, was in a car accident during the week that I was there for my spring break with Dickinson and was paralyzed. And so he, his brother, and another member of the staff had to fly home. And believe it or not, I didn't go home to Dickinson when the rest of my classmates did. I stayed for an extra week. It turned out to be 10 days. They hired me to stay and work for them for a week, which I was able to pull off for a range of reasons. And it was okay for Dickinson to allow me to do that. And I did. And they ended up hiring me full time as a regional sales manager to then go on to work with that company to help them build more clients in the college university space. But it, it unfortunately came out of a great tragedy. My uh, good friend, Stephen and his brother, Jonathan, were involved in that. Jonathan was paralyzed and Stephen was the VP at the company who I'm still very close friends with to this day. He's mm -hmm. a great guy. We actually share a birthday. So anyway, that, that's the mogul story. Well, that, that, that uh, you know, the, the, the tragedy aside, uh, I will say, first of all, I don't remember what the company was called, but we are now connected as fellow campus reps for the spring break tour company. And I also hit the 20. I didn't do 50, but I did do 20. Yep. And as a fellow financial aid student had to get uh, scrappy with side hustles before they were called side hustles. And so I, I feel you on that. I also will say the skills required to lead a senior class gift and the skills required to sell Barbados spring break packages are quite similar. Mm -hmm. I, and uh, I want to assure you and, and the audience that will listen to this, that I did not link those things in any way. So let's just make sure that everyone knows there no, was no, 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 crossover no creative packaging, senior campaign no. and Barbados trip. Those things happened in, in there was a firewall for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and so you went and and did that. Uh, don't need to get into the details, but had to be a lot of fun. And I do think it's, you know, look, there are parallels between, um, you know, sales and fundraising. Not everybody likes to acknowledge that, but but there just are. There and are. Uh, at the same time, you know, I'm guessing after a couple of fun years on the slope and uh, on the slopes and in the sun, um, you felt uh, at that point, like getting back to your independent school roots would yep. would be a natural sort of next step. It was. And, um, you know, it came out of a Dickinson relationship. So a, um, a, a, a college friend, actually a, a woman who graduated a couple of years before me, who was one of my supervisors when I was a work study student in the development office, um, ended up uh, in a leadership role at Berkshire School up in Sheffield, Massachusetts. And she was uh, in the process of recruiting a, a new assistant director of annual giving, a, an entry-level position in, in their office. And her name is Molly Bittner. Uh, Molly is uh, someone who um, has been an advancement leader for many, many years, is living down in Richmond now, worked at the University of Richmond and a couple of other great nonprofits down in Richmond. Molly reached out to me and said, you know, I'm not sure what you're thinking about doing next, but I'm looking to hire someone in this role and uh, sort of off, off I went to that position at Berkshire School and, and to what now has become a, 
30 plus year career in, in educational advancement. And when you think about those early years, um, were there moments when you, uh, I mean, you had, I would imagine Berkshire different than uh, where you grew up, but a common, maybe common experience somewhat. Um, what were there moments along the way? And I do need to ask now, I think we've done 80 some episodes and we've never probably said the word Pyrenees. And now I'm going to ask you about founding the Pyrenees group, uh, which I know was something along the way, but just tell me about those early years, sure. uh, taking a step aside to do something entrepreneurial and then coming back to the sector. Yeah. Well, so, uh, you know, the early years were incredibly uh, inspiring to me to work for Molly, uh, who uh, was just a, a great boss and mentor, uh, someone who I learned a lot from. But there were other amazing mentors that I met and worked with at Berkshire School, uh, an amazing guy named Joe Hornick, who uh, was the director of development, the chief, chief development officer at Berkshire, was someone I learned a lot from. Um, uh, Jonathan Meir, who uh, another great advancement leader, um, Jonathan uh, was there as the chief development officer during my time. And so, you know, those, those four years at Berkshire were, were incredible and, and taught me a lot. So I, you know, I certainly knew a lot having grown up in the independent school world about the independent school world. And I think that helped me because I understood the ethos of, of what independent schools, prep schools were about. And I was a credible ambassador of it, I think, as an advancement leader. Um, because I had that experience. So um, it was great. And then there was an opportunity that I did not anticipate um, where two partners and I came into sort of a, you know, just an opportunity that we didn't see coming, but felt like one we didn't want to pass up to form uh, the Pyrenees Group as, as three co-founders, as three uh, co-investors, uh, modest investors, I will say, but we did need to put some capital into what we were creating. Um, which at that point in my life and my career, um, you know, sort of newly married and, and uh, trying to, to build, you know, uh, resources for, for our life together, you know, they were, the, the resources were not, uh, you know, extraordinary, but we were able to come together and put together a, a small company and it was a company in the golf industry. So it was a, a sales and marketing company uh, focused on the golf industry and we marketed three separate products. Uh, one was a teaching aid, one was a, a golf club, a putter, and the third was a golf course uh, product, a, a, a golf club cleaner that was a product that we marketed directly to golf courses. So we had all three of those verticals sort of going side by side, and um, it was an amazing experience. I mean, we, we had to hustle a lot. Um, it was seven days a week, 365 for the whole time we did it. Um, an experience, Brent, I'm sure, you know, resonates with you. Um, an experience I wouldn't trade to this day. And I think it's probably why I have, you know, and probably always will have an entrepreneurial sort of bent to my leadership style and management style, and, and maybe always want to be pushing a little bit harder to find the next great idea or solution. Um, not at the expense of great things we're already doing, but because I think that that's how we keep our edge. And, um, that experience with the Pyrenees group was great, but the golf industry is, man, it's, um, it is tough. Uh, it is really brutal. It was a eye-opening experience when I showed up on the trade show floor at the Orange County Convention Center in Orlando, Florida, and we were in a 10 by 10 booth and about, I don't know, 20 feet away at the end of the row I was in was tailor-made in a 140,000 square foot booth that was two stories high. So, um, 
How do you think startups feel next to the blackboard booths? Right. Daddy, exactly. I know the feeling. Right. And I'll tell right. you my first experience, because it does link back to the independent school world. My first case conference that I ever went to was the case NAIS conference, which is the independent school national association of independent schools. Yep, know it well. And I didn't even have a 10 by 10 booth instead Travis Warren, who is the CEO of Whipple Hill Communications, which was yep. making websites for independent schools, Travis was excited about some of our early work and, and potentially partnering. And so he gave me about a, a one by one side of his 10 by 10 booth, you know, next to the Blackboard right. 100 by 100 booth. And, uh, Yep. That is a very humbling moment, whether you're yes. on a trade show uh, for golf or the first trade show in just about any vertical, because you're the smallest you'll ever be. You know the least you'll ever know. You're the least connected you'll ever be. Your product's right. the least compelling it will ever be. Uh, but you showed up. And so yeah. I have to ask, I'm not going to ask about, well, the highs in entrepreneurship I, I find to be much higher and the lows much lower than you might get in a more stable role. And so are there any highs or any breakthrough moments where you really felt that rush uh, of adrenaline that, that you'd be comfortable sharing? Yeah, for sure. I mean, any, any contracts we signed, any orders that we fulfilled where someone placed an order with us um, really felt extraordinary, right? And so whether we were able to kind of have a really significant order or even a minimum order fulfilled, uh, that felt really, really extraordinary. And so th those moments uh, stick out for sure. I think the other moments that stick out are probably smaller really in and of themselves, but they still feel like great successes. And I think it's also woven into how to some degree I still function to this day. I mean, I used to love trying to create ways to get in the door, trying to create ways to figure out how to get in front of people and get their attention and get them to pay attention and get them to hear me out. And um, I think all of that still pervades a little bit how I do advancement work, right? I mean, um, we hear no more than we hear yes in advancement. Um, but you better hear enough no's in our work to get to yes. Uh, any advancement officer that thinks every conversation is leading to a gift outcome is, I think, going to be uh, disappointed. And so that, you know, those experiences where, you know, I could be creative or innovative or find a way to, you know, to get in front of people and then have that turn into a conversation where they paid attention and you felt respected. Uh, those those are moments that really feel like highs. You know, the lows were just around failure, right? Where where you got no for an answer, or you know, ultimately when we got to a point where you know capital was was uh, depleted and we didn't have ways to replenish it, at least not ways that we wanted to to consider, and we hit that moment of having to to kind of close down the Pyrenees Group, and uh, and that's what led me back into into advancement, which was a profession and a and a you know, uh, and, and work that I didn't leave because I didn't love it. I left because I had an opportunity that I didn't necessarily think I would have again. And so, um, but who knows? I, you know, um, you never know, right? Who knows? Maybe there's an entrepreneurial venture in my future and that will happen someday. But uh, getting permission for my wife twice to do that may be hard. So that's why I'm just doing Evertrue because then I don't have to ask for a second uh, right. permission. Exactly. I'm still on the first permission. Exactly. Well, I'm excited to pivot back into your advancement career. And I will start by saying um, 
I've been trying to get to sleep at a more consistent earlier time. And I rarely uh, watch movies, okay? But last night, for whatever reason, I was about to go to bed and then the movie, The Fighter came on. And The Fighter is uh, about, uh, it's a Mark Wahlberg, Christian Bale film about Mickey Ward and Dickie Eglund and it, and it, it won a bunch of awards, but uh, it took place with boxing as the backdrop in Lowell, Massachusetts. And I did some additional research. It was 1997 when Mickey Ward's comeback happened with Lowell as the backdrop. And that is the year that you started working in development at UMass Lowell. And I share all of that setup because while Lowell has had somewhat of a renaissance in recent years, the backdrop presented by that film was pretty gritty and certainly a very different environment and context than you had experienced in your own independent school childhood, certainly a very different environment than Berkshire School, uh, probably having not much in common besides the fact that they're in the state of Massachusetts. And so that is a very different environment. And I would love to just sort of get your perspective on that time. And as we've worked with UMass Lowell, what has been really amazing is to see how much of an engine of change and regional transformation institutions like that can have uh, in, in communities like Lowell. So forgive me for the long setup, but it's yep. really coincidental. Sure. I watched the fighter last night. Yeah. Um, well, so um, th thank you for that question. Lowell uh, is just an extraordinary city uh, and, and sort of by extension, the, the region right around it is extraordinary. Um, Lowell felt very, very uh, familiar to me. Um, I grew up in Danbury, Connecticut. Yes, I grew up on a independent school campus, but I grew up in Danbury, right? So I went through the elementary schools. You know, I play, played in the police athletic league soccer, you know, long before things like club soccer were ever invented. Um, so I, I, you know, I grew up in that community. I also grew up for big chunks of my life in, in Poe, which is an amazing and beautiful city, but also has kind of deep working class roots as a, as a city in southwestern France, and uh, and grew up as the you know son of as I said two school teachers, and um, you know as the grandson of uh, in France a baker, uh, somebody who you know was uh, himself my grandfather uh, Louis was was a baker, and so Lowell has that um, that kind of immigrant working class tradition. It's an old mill city um, before the, the textile trade uh, got relocated to the Carolinas. Uh, Lowell was the, you know, kind of on the Merrimack River. It was one of the great textile cities in, uh, you know, in, in our new country. And so those working class roots and those um, aspects of the heritage of the city uh, run deep. And they felt very, very familiar to me, um, the immigrant community, the, you know, sort of the, the way the city uh, sort of had that vibe. And. And just that, that work ethic that pervaded that city felt very familiar to me. It, it is in the ethos of my family through and through. It's certainly in my ethos and in the ethos of my immediate family, um, you know, my, my wife and, and two kids. Um, and so a lot of that felt very comfortable to me and, and something that was very inspiring to me. And the university, uh, now known as UMass Lowell, the University of Massachusetts Lowell, has many predecessor institutions. Um, but those predecessor institutions are all on that same foundation of uh, a kind of resilience and, and a community that really 
uh, invested heavily in education, but really believed that education was the pathway for all of the great students and alumni that I knew to come through that amazing public university in a way that would launch them and change the trajectory of their lives and their you know, future generations of their families' lives. So um, a really special place and um, one of my closest friends in this profession um, who I consider you know, on many levels, not just a great friend, but a great mentor is the person who leads the advancement program there now after I led it many, many years ago. So John Fudo, as you may know, is uh, one of my dearest friends and uh, an amazing guy. And I'm really, really proud um, that he's doing such extraordinary work at UMass Lowell. And a new grandfather. And he, um, yes. he actually uh, did uh, join me for an episode of the Raised podcast. And I had the opportunity to actually go on campus uh, at that time. And we filmed it in person, which we, we've only done a couple of times. Um, but even that day, just seeing the... Uh, the critical role that that institution plays in that community and in the region is, it, yeah. it just is so inspiring. And I just say all of that because you've worked in the independent school context, you've worked and led uh, at Lowell, you've crossing off. There's a real broad range of experiences, communities, um, you know, positioning of the institution, but you ultimately did assume your first uh, chief advancement leadership role at UMass Lowell. Uh, and an eight-year tenure is a long tenure in the sector. And so I'm curious sort of what kept you there and maybe just like you, you shared with the Pyrenees group, were there any highs or, or memories that stand out uh, from your time uh, at Lowell? Yeah. Um, the, I, I would probably characterize the memories as, as almost all highs. I, I just, um, I think back so fondly, Brent, on my time there um, at UMass Lowell and, um, you know, and the opportunities to lead that program to work alongside those colleagues that were there was incredible. Um, you know, the chancellors and the other campus leaders, the, the, the deans of the various colleges were extraordinary leaders and colleagues. Uh, and I, I remember many of those people very fondly. Um, there's one extraordinary uh, sort of person in my time. There were many, but there's one name, I guess I should say, that sticks out. Um, and, and it's the name of Professor Jim Canning, James Canning. Uh, Jim Canning was the computer science department chair during a big chunk of my time at UMass Lowell. And I got to work closely with Jim, very, very closely with him. He was an extraordinary faculty fundraiser, faculty advancement partner. Um, and the chance to work alongside Jim to do the things we did for computer science at the university uh, just really touched me. And when I got here, to, um, to FNM, there was a letter sitting on the top of the inbox on my desk. And it was a thank you letter from FNM to Professor James Canning, thanking him for his annual fund gift to FNM that he made in honor of my appointment. And uh, that's just kind of how he rolls, um, that kind of an extraordinary person. So he's one of many, many, many people that um, stand out in my sort of memories about, uh, about my time at UMass Lowell. And, you know, I, I likely would have stayed there a lot longer were it not for some other career opportunities that came my way. And, uh, you know, and it, it, you know, there were some things about new opportunities that really inspired me. And so I, you know, um, decided to consider moving into those roles. But um, there was we, nothing that felt negative or, or, you know, kind of, there were no lows that I can think of at UMass Lowell. We haven't talked too much about the importance of faculty partners in fundraising. Uh, 
I would like to know more about what makes a great faculty advancement partner like Jim. Um, but also, I'd like your perspective on, I think we have this idea that, okay, we brainstorm, the president sort of lays out a strategic vision, the board agrees, and then we sort of do the next level, the next level down, funding priorities, and all of that boils up into a capital campaign or, you know, capital spending. But I imagine there's some element of it being a bit circular where if you feel like you have an amazing partner like a Jim Canning, does that actually change or shape the prioritization of certain campaign initiatives relative to faculty partners who maybe maybe aren't as interested in getting behind you? So does it does it become a bit of a, I don't know, is it is it maybe more influenced by who's a great partner in addition to just what are our big priorities? Because if you have a big priority that boils down into this initiative, but not a great faculty partner, it can probably really hinder your ability to go and make that happen. Yeah, no, it, well, it's a, it's a great question. And, and the question is, is, I guess maybe on some level, sort of a chicken and egg kind of a thing, right? In other words, how, how do you define which way you're uh, establishing various different fundraising priorities. And I, I think that, at least in my experience, um, I don't know that I would say it's either or, it's probably both and, um, which ho I hope doesn't sound like too much of a cop-out. But what, what I would say is that um, on every campus that I've ever served, uh, there are some commonalities. One is there has never been, in my experience, uh, any shortage of great ideas. How could there be on a college or university campus, which are all about faculty and students and other colleagues coming together to shape, you know, a great educational experience? So as a former um, leader in the UMass system that I knew once said to me, the hardest part about a job of being president and provost or even vice president for advancement or a, a senior officer in an institutional setting is trying to choose every day between competing good ideas that are making their way to the senior officers. And so I, I, I have usually found that that's the hardest part is, um, you know, Jim Canning is one name that stands out to me, but the leadership and the scholarship and the amazing kinds of things that were coming out of the faculty and also out of other aspects of the student life mission, um, other aspects of the mission of all the institutions I've been a part of, um, there were no shortage of good ideas. Um, and, you know, thankfully there, there didn't seem to be too much of a shortage of partners either. Um, but I think you're right that when you find those amazing faculty partners and those partners um, represent aspects of the institution's um, goals and priorities that you can really bring to life, boy, um, what, a, you know, what an amazing and magical part of our work that is when you get all those things to really happen in great ways. And I think um, for me at least, uh, we all in advancement are ambassadors of and we are extensions of the academic and overall student experience. And so when you have those faculty partners uh, or other partners on your campus that want to help work alongside you to bring that story to life, um, it, it's just, it's extraordinary. And so it, it creates a lot of inspiration for me when that's happening. Um, but I do think that it's really uh, important that there is a process on any campus for fundraising that priorities can be agreed to in, a, in an appropriate and in a way that has some process because we can't only respond to where great partnership might be. Um, there may be many great partners 
who could bring a lot to bear on certain aspects of our fundraising work. But if the provost or the president or other key leaders, maybe it's a dean, um, are not maybe wed to those particular things being the immediate priorities, we have to follow the institution's leaders in defining what those priorities are. And so uh, we all serve in advancement leadership roles at the pleasure of um, the board, the president, uh, our senior officer peers, you know, my peers on the senior staff. And our goal is to help build resources in support of that direction in that moment, whatever direction and moment we are in at Franklin and Marshall or at Boston College or UMass Lowell. Um, it is our job to build resources at the moment we are in to drive those aspects of the mission that are most important for this moment. Um, and that, yeah. that changes over time, right? Um, but that's hard to solve for. Well, I think what you speak to around prioritization is key. Um, whether you're trying to start the Pyrenees group, you probably had a fourth product you considered. Maybe you only considered going out with two products. Maybe there were seven other products you considered, right? It's no different than our work at Evertrue, most entrepreneurial ventures, and even selling the mission of philanthropy in a broad-based campus environment. Uh, you can't do it all, and ruthless prioritization uh, is, is hard at any level, uh, and, and I'm sure even uh, much more so when you've got so many um, scholars and uh, various components of the mission that are deserving uh, of that additional uh, yeah. additional support. And so maybe, um, you may be please, yeah. one, one uh, sort of important thought, if I may, on this point, uh, Brent, before we pivot, and that is that I do think it's important, and I try to do this uh, at FNM and I have in other institutional settings, that um, that we take great care in our advancement leadership roles not to conflate fundraising prioritization completely with institutional prioritization, right? No campaign can raise every dollar that is needed for every single thing that is a priority. There are many things that are invested in by all institutions that don't maybe have an extraordinary fundraising market, whatever those things may be, but they may be very, very important institutional priorities. So I think that's an important part of my conversation with faculty colleagues and other colleagues is, just because it's not on our campaign, you know, kind of fundraising list does not mean that it is not a, an institutional priority, right? We build revenue models that include philanthropy, but lots of other kinds of revenue. And so, uh, because sometimes I think people feel like, oh, well, the campaign has these priorities. And if I'm not on the list in some way, then I must not be a priority. That is not the case. Um, it is the case that we need to build a case for philanthropic support that is one that philanthropy will be inspired to come to and to support. And not everything that we care about and that is a priority will resonate with a philanthropic audience. So I just wanted to underscore that because I don't mean to suggest that priorities are only those things that can work in fundraising. There are many priorities. Some of them will become fundraising priorities and some won't. There are many things that we might say, gosh, I'm, I'm not so sure you know, we have a market for deferred maintenance. Um, you know, there are not a lot of donors out there that might uh, be getting behind deferred maintenance. Um, so, you know, there are things that, that are critical institutional priorities, but they may not make it onto a fundraising priority list. Well said, thank you um, for clarifying. And uh, part of why we do this is to just get a window into how that, uh, you know, how that positioning and packaging of a campaign actually happens. And I do want to just quickly ask your perspective 
uh, during your time at Boston College, getting to work with Jim Husson, who shares your culinary interests for sure. Yes, uh, and uh, when you think about um, some of the experiences, especially given your focus on capital giving there, that had to be sort of a whole new level of solicitation. I would imagine maybe some of the largest asks that you were a part of, um, at least up to that point in your career, maybe not, but I'm just curious when you think about key trips or milestones during that, that time at BC, what, what, uh, what stands out? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, working as a part of that leadership team alongside uh, Jim and, and, and John Fudo, who was there as part of that leadership, leadership team, uh, you know, people like Tom Lockerbie, who's one of uh, our yep. professions, you know, just sort of most uh, extraordinary leaders and, and the list goes on and on. I mean, I, you know, we could, we could use a lot of time. I could list uh, many, many people that were extraordinary colleagues and, and partners while I was there. Um, the campaign for Boston College was incredibly successful. Um, you know, the role I was in uh, as uh, Associate VP for Capital Giving um, during part of my time there was a role working alongside Tom and Jim to really try to be uh, successful in supporting that capital giving team. So while there were uh, certain aspects of my work that, that involved portfolio management, the way we were structured um, really centered a lot of that work in the work of our principal gift team and our major gift team. And, you know, alongside Tom, you know, we were trying to work very closely to make sure that we were supporting the success of that frontline team and spending a lot of time, uh, you know, kind of managing and supporting and aiding and abetting the work of our frontline staff so that they had all the things that they needed um, in, in their work, managing portfolios. And uh, we had some really extraordinary gift officers, folks that uh, a number of whom are still there, a number of whom have moved on to great success thereafter. So um, just, you know, an incredible experience all around and one that, um, you know, mattered a, a lot to me to be a part of that team and to, to work alongside Jim, uh, especially was, uh, was a great privilege. Um, and he can be my sous chef any day. <laughs> uh, I will make sure that he, that he hears that. Um, <laughs> so your life and career up to that point, other than college, had largely been centered around New England yeah. with the time in France, but France and New England yeah. couldn't have been easy to leave that network and community that you, I know, had built in the greater Boston area and New England more broadly, um, but you did. And so tell me just a little bit about what inspired you to take the role at Franklin and Marshall. And uh, obviously, with the capital campaign concluding successfully around the, the, the corner. I know that's gotta be a huge milestone. And I imagine it was just yep. getting underway as you arrived, sort of just coming out of the financial crisis. But just tell me a little bit of what, in, what inspired you to, to go there and some of the, the memories that you've experienced so far. Yeah, I'm happy to. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say that the, the three things that inspired me when I came to FNM back in 2012 are, are still on, on many levels, the same three things that inspire me to this day. Um, and those three things then and today are the people, the potential and the president. And those three things were primary in my exploration of the role that I'm now still in and, and, and the reason that I was inspired by the opportunity to come here. All of the people I met as a candidate um, were 
just unbelievably uh, inspiring people to get to know during that process. Um, that includes uh, members of the, you know, the, the college senior staff uh, that I met, members of the board of trustees that I met in that process, uh, some of whom are still on our board and still people that I work closely with. Um, and our former president, who's now the president and CEO of the Aspen Institute, was someone who, um, in my interactions as a candidate, I was really inspired by. And uh, that mattered a lot. And, and then the last piece was the potential. And so I, you know, probably because of my, you know, kind of entrepreneurial bias and instinct and, and kind of, um, uh, you know, the motor that, that, uh, that, that I've got, which um, I think some people wish was in some lower gears sometimes, but um, my, my motor really focuses a lot on potential. And it felt like this great institution um, had more to prove and more to achieve around advancement, fundraising, alumni, and parent engagement. And I felt like I could join the effort and, and be a part of it and play a role in it and, um, and be someone who could help shape uh, whatever that next chapter might look like. And, uh, and I think to a large degree, we've done that. We are not in the promised land by any stretch. We have um, more work to do, and uh, I'm looking forward to whatever that next piece of uh, success might look like. But those same three things inspire me to this day. And um, it is the people, especially the people I work alongside in advancement, who are just uh, extraordinary advancement leaders and colleagues, but they're also extraordinary human beings. And when you come to work every day, you know, well, now we're coming back to work. But, um, you know, when you work alongside people, the many hours that we do, to be inspired by not just how well they do their work, but who they are. Um, that's an extraordinary feeling. And that's true of the senior staff that I work with uh, in advancement and everybody I work with in our advancement division. Um, and it's true of the senior staff at the college level that I work with as a member of the president's cabinet. So those people are still a big part of my inspiration. Our president, Barbara Altman, is an extraordinary leader, um, an extraordinary president and someone who has taken the institution through, uh, you know, through a lot in her first two and a half years. And uh, I'm excited about all that is ahead with our new strategic plan, which is about to roll out and we're gonna roll it out this fall. Um, and then the potential is still there, right? We are an extraordinary uh, institution, a leading liberal arts institution, but um, there's more work to do and there's more we can achieve. And I know everybody in, um, you know, in the advancement office and everybody around the college senior staff table is excited about what we're gonna do next. And uh, I, I'm excited about that too. I feel, you know, coming out of COVID a little fatigued, but mostly excited and fired up and ready to go. So tell me about a fourth P. You talked people, potential, president. How about yep. progress? When you think about where you were, uh, because look, we're, we're never going to feel like we're done, right? There's no, not like right. a day when, you know, hey, we, we achieved the potential, right? We're always going to be pushing uh, for additional improvement. But when you think about where maybe the advancement organization was in 2012 versus 2022, what are some of the things that stand out as being real significant areas of progress, but also where does the most potential potentially remain? Yeah, great, um, great question. I, I think we've achieved a lot of progress in, um, in a few ways. So, you know, our campaign has established a new threshold of success for fundraising we have uh, established new records in you know, kind of almost every measure that we would want to measure. 
And so we're very proud of that, but that's exactly what campaigns are supposed to do, right? They are supposed to increase resources. They are supposed to bring resources to bear on the mission. And they're supposed to do so at a level that is elevated, right? That is moving well up above the previous run rate. And so we've achieved all of that. So we've seen great progress in you know, the development of uh, major gift philanthropy at FNM. We've seen an extraordinary number of uh, six and seven figure gifts come in. We've exceeded um, a number of the goals we had for six and seven figure uh, donors in the campaign. Um, but we also know we have a lot of work ahead. So that progress, I think, feels very good around certain fundraising metrics. Um, the other part of our progress that I feel really proud of is I think we've succeeded in professionalizing, uh, systematizing, and really uh, kind of in an organized way, centralizing the profession of advancement and fundraising and constituent engagement for FNM. Um, and by professionalizing all that work, we've really been, I think, successful in organizing for our campus um, a, you know, an important business unit, one that um, matters a lot to the future sustainability of the institution, but that work is never done. So while I think um, we all feel very proud of what we've done around professionalizing various, various aspects of our work, we know that that is just sort of the beginning. Now um, we need to carry that work forward. And really, as we go into the next phase of, of growth and prosperity for FNM, we need to think about what that looks like. The things that I would put on the list of not yet fully uh, kind of complete or, or not yet at the point where I feel like the work is, is done or near done. Um, number one, around fully and completely expanding the culture of philanthropy so that philanthropy as an aspect of our ethos is you know, sort of a bit more pervasive and more uh, baked into the way we as an entire campus community are thinking about our resource development efforts. So that's one thing I think that we've progressed really well on, but I, I feel we can do more. Um, the other is around uh, broad-based uh, constituent engagement. And by that, I mean external constituent engagement. So um, there is more work we can do to more deeply and fully and completely embed uh, alumni in the ongoing mission of the institution um, and to embed uh, parents in the ongoing mission of our institution. So we've made some progress, but we've also slipped back a little bit in terms of our alumni donor participation, a number that we all track very closely. And, and so while in terms of dollars, our campaign has been very successful and will, uh, I hope, end over goal, maybe even well over goal, um, we've seen a, a slight slide, as many schools have in the country, in the number of alumni donors that are annual donors. And, and that's an area that we really need to pay attention to. Uh, we're launching some new initiatives right now that will uh, start this year and they will carry us through the end of this campaign and they'll carry us probably into the next campaign. So we're forming a new um, presidential alumni engagement work group that is starting right now and will, um, will be in place for at least three years. So it will exceed and transcend the end of this campaign. Um, that kind of work feels really, really critical to me for FNM. And so those are a couple of things that I think we want to focus on and really pay attention to in a way that's going to help us get to whatever that next plateau is for Franklin and Marshall. One thing you said, I just want to double click on because um, oftentimes alumni participation and donor count get conflated. And I think some folks have been out there and they've said, look, we don't care about participation anymore because our class sizes have gotten so big, it just isn't a relevant metric for us versus other institutions where maybe the class size uh, construction hasn't evolved as much. That is very different than being okay with 
our donor count declining. And I think that's something where I would hope that as a sector, participation aside and the growing denominator uh, aside, we should all care about the numerator and we should all care about the absolute change. Are we growing the donor community or is it shrinking? And it's, it's important uh, to hear you, I think, state that you do feel that continues to, to be worth considering when, at, on the other hand, somebody might say, look, your real job is to blow through that $200 million plus campaign goal. And if you do it with five mega gifts, that will be all included in the big number at the end, uh, as opposed to chasing 2,500 more mini gifts. Yeah, and I, um, it, it's a great question. And I think it, um, what I would say is that there may be uh, any number of, of vice presidents, my peers in, in roles uh, around the country who um, are really laser focused on how big can the dollar number be? And, and that's fine. I mean, I think that each one of us in the roles we're in have to understand the mandate and have to understand the urgency of, of what we've been charged with. Um, I believe deeply that that is critically important and the, the resources at the dollar level uh, matter a great deal to this institution, to everything we're trying to achieve. But I also believe that as the chief advancement officer, it is my responsibility and I would be abdicating my responsibility if I was not also preparing the institution for its future. And so 25 years from now, I am pretty sure I won't be here in this role. Um, someone needs to be in this role and they need to be um, able to succeed at that time um, based on a foundation of, of uh, you know, kind of donor behavior that was created before them uh, in ways that I feel responsible to create. So I do believe that it is part of my responsibility and it is part of, I think, the responsibility of our team to create a culture of philanthropy that allows any and all donors at whatever level they give to feel like um, Franklin and Marshall is a philanthropic priority for them. And philanthropic priority does not mean that there are lots of, you know, that there's lots of punctuation in your gift amount. It, it just means that, that the institution matters to you and reflects your values and you yeah. choose to support it annually at whatever level you choose to support it. And I, I do think that's a big part of uh, my and our responsibility is to, is to be focused on donor count as an expression of our philanthropic culture and our philanthropic maturity. And we're and, not there yet, right? We, we have more work to do. Um, and and I, I will say, we feel like we have to share some of that responsibility as well. And, and when I say we, I mean, ever true, but also hopefully the vendor community, you know, more broadly, because what I think it would be, dis you've described yourself previously to me as a techno-literate VP, which I yep. think is fair. And I obviously believe strongly in the potential for data and technology to streamline and improve and accelerate authentic relationship building that drives both donors and dollars. That's my work in my life. And at the same time, you could potentially say, not necessarily you in your specific role, but there are vice presidents out there who could say, after implementing a new CRM, 
and spending $3 million doing so, and then launching a day of giving or a crowdfunding component or launching this tool or that tool or implementing Evertrue or whatever it may be, our donor count continued to decline. And it makes me frustrated to think that in spite of all of the improvements and innovations around technology, we collectively have not yet solved this problem. And I do feel like it really is solvable, not for every donor, but for a much greater swath of our giving pyramid uh, to be able to help generate more loyalty, more consistency, greater donor lifetime value earlier in their journey. And that can't just be on your team. There has to be a partnership between the tech ecosystem and the advancement community but we're not there yet. I think we're seeing some flashes of hope and, and I've got some strong conviction around things improving. Um, but, but in a certain regard, there's been a little bit of a shell game. Maybe we moved some things from the phone-a-thon over to this channel and then from that channel to this channel. But when you take a deep breath at the end of the year, the numbers are still declining and, and that cannot be where this all ends up. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, just to, to speak a little bit to that, I, I, I would say a few things, Brent. First of all, I would say that um, many of the things you described that, that form the infrastructure underneath our work have to be there, right? Whether it's CRM or Evertrue as a tool for volunteer management or other things we might use it for, or in the case of our shop, we have a business intelligence platform that sits on top of our database. Um, you know, and, and, and other things like that, that are, that are part of, uh, and, it's, and it's my responsibility along with our senior team to make sure that that infrastructure, uh, the foundation of, of what we're trying to get done is well built, um, that it's up to date, that it's, you know, secure, that it, it, that it functions and meets the needs of our team in every way that, that it needs to. Um, but infrastructure and, and interfacing with donors are not synonymous, right? And so um, the, the development of that foundation, that infrastructure does not in and of itself guarantee that there will be, uh, you know, outcomes uh, right. related to the investment in that infrastructure. Um, that said, I'm pretty sure that if we don't have the infrastructure, it's going to be a lot harder to create the outcome. So, you know, while, while the formula of build the infrastructure and you'll raise more donors and dollars is not true, not having a strong infrastructure, um, probably will lead to not as many donors and dollars as you might like. So the Absolutely. formula doesn't unfortunately work both ways. What I would say Absolutely. is that that infrastructure is critical. It is. I don't think, at least in my experience, that, that that's where the rubber meets the road. Um, you know, I, I think that between that infrastructure and the motivation and the inspiration that a donor will have, either an annual fund donor or, you know, a major donor, principal gift donor. Um, there is a lot of space between infrastructure and the inspiration of a donor. And so between infrastructure and inspiration is where I think, um, you know, our profession needs to do more good work. I think we need to figure out uh, what needs to happen between, you know, an infrastructure and donor inspiration. And we need to try to solve for that in all sorts of new ways. And I, I think that's, that's um, it's an area of opportunity, but also vulnerability for, for many shops. 
Um, and, and it's, you know, easier to describe it than really to solve it. But I think that probably is the space where uh, we see things going in our profession. I, I think that's where um, the most innovative and successful programs are going to go is trying to solve for those things. I, I do not think there is any shortage of tools. Um, I, I don't think that's our problem. Um, maybe there are too many tools. I don't know. I don't think that's yeah. our problem. I think our problem or let's not say problem. Our opportunity lies in the space between that infrastructure and what happens at the point of donor inspiration. And, and maybe, Maddie, that's so well said. And maybe the last decade was just about getting the infrastructure in place, which was probably a decade later than it should have been for this sector. But, it, but we, we, we got through that necessary period. And maybe the 2020s can be more about innovating around the inspiration and scaling inspiration now that there is somewhat uh, of, of a stable uh, infrastructure. I'm hopeful. That's where we're going to spend a lot of time. I can't wait to talk about it with you more. At the same time, we're already 13 minutes over, uh, and this has been a super fun conversation. And before I, uh, I wrap, I do want to give you an opportunity if there are roles or, or, or growth opportunities at FNM uh, that folks should be aware of, or if they want to stay in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? And this would also be the last chance to make the recommendation of the restaurant in Poe. Yes, right. Um, and yeah, had, if we weren't on a Zoom call, I might have been texting uh, my mom to say, what's the name of that restaurant? <laughs> so, um, so yeah, thank you for, for that, uh, that, that softball, Brent. I appreciate it. So yes, we, we are, though we are nearing the end of this campaign, we're actually already beginning to think about the staffing and the structure for our next campaign. So those, those things overlap, as I think we all know today, where the conclusion of one campaign leads to the next. So we have some vacancies that we're already sort of looking to fill um, in multiple different spots in our organization. You know, email, which is on the FNM website, is a really easy way to get to me. And I'm, I'd be thrilled to hear from any colleagues that um, want to brainstorm any of the things that came up today or, or disabuse me of any of the things that we talked about today and tell me that I've got it all wrong. I, I would welcome that. And um, it, it's been great to have those kinds of interactions with lots of colleagues over many, many years. So um, that would be great. I, I do want to mention one thing that we didn't get a chance to touch on, and that is that um, one of the great parts of our profession and my professional life has been my affiliation with CASE, which is the Council for Advancement and Support of Education. And um, one of the projects that I was able to be a part of was um, the first global edition of CASE's Reporting Standards and Management Guidelines, which has just come out. Um, it was published, um, I guess, about three months ago or four months ago. It started rolling off of the assembly line to everybody that wanted to buy it. And uh, we have updated the reporting standards and management guidelines for CASE, uh, we being CASE as, a, as, a, as our professional association, uh, working alongside uh, the co-chair, Brian Hastings. Um, he and I co-chaired the effort that, that did this. Um, Jim Huston, actually, who we mentioned earlier, was part of the effort, as were a lot of extraordinary advancement leaders. And so there's some big changes in the new CASE management and reporting standards. So... We if you have the time, yeah, I was just going to say, if you have the time and can go a little bit longer, what are the two, three, four things that advancement professionals should understand 
uh, in the context of the reporting standards, hoping that everybody has an opportunity to reveal in, in greater detail or to review in greater detail, but what's the sort of cliff notes on the, the changes in, in, and the outcomes from that work? Yeah, I think uh, probably a few cliff notes. One, I mentioned already, it's a global edition. So one overarching significant change in this global edition is that the edition you will read and receive and work from is not bound by US or Canadian or some other regional or, or country's tax code. So we have disaggregated those things, right? So those things are, are um, each sort of country that our global profession represents has a separate country section in the book. And there is reference to, uh, you know, IRS tax codes or uh, the CRA, the Canadian, Canadian Revenue Agency, I believe it's called, up in Canada in those country sections in the back. But we pull those things apart. So that's, that's one big change. So we are no longer talking about reporting on and describing philanthropic success for our profession strictly through the lens of whether the IRS does or does not consider it a gift, so to speak. We have to be aware of it for sure, but it's no longer a primary driver of how we're defining it. So that's one big thing. I think the other very, very big takeaway is transparency. So we set out in developing these new reporting standards and management guidelines to create transparency around everything we do in our work so that we could, as peer institutions, um, work with one another and see each other's work in a way that allows us to see when Maddie at Franklin and Marshall reports on their campaign, what is in those numbers? How is he counting? How long did he count? Um, how did he count various different kinds of gifts? And what can peer institutions see in the data that allows them to understand the successes of lots of other programs? So that transparency is a big part of it. I would say that's, that's primary. Um, and then related to transparency also is making sure that we're ensuring in every way um, coming out of an environment that included something called Varsity Blues, as we all know, um, it's imperative that Case is seen as the leader of our profession in every way, including making sure that transparency um, would sort of remove any possibility that people would think that there's, you know, kind of, um, you know, elevated counting or things that, that might not be seen as um, above board. And so that's an important part of our profession and our profession needs to reflect those kinds of professional standards. And then um, I guess the last thing I would say is there are some, you know, more specific changes in the way um, certain gifts would be counted going forward. So uh, we made some changes to how bequests would be counted, um, which is all in the book. We, we established a universal sort of age threshold. Um, we looked at things like, um, you know, the the athletic seating and donor seating uh, kinds of questions. And we pulled those apart and looked at all of that. Uh, we looked at conditional pledges. We looked at deferred giving. So we looked at a number of the specific aspects of campaign counting and counting for philanthropy that I think are, you know, sort of brought up to date. Um, and then there are things like donor advised funds, which didn't exist 10 years ago when the last standards were published. And so we've updated the standards to include um, commentary on donor advised funds and how to count those things. So within the book itself, I think there are uh, some really important key Kind of features that we all want to pay attention to. But those things that I mentioned at the outset are kind of the overarching outcomes of the work. It was a project that took two years to get done. And it was um, just an extraordinary group of volunteers that got it done. So, um, you know, I, 
it's a topic I care a lot about. I could go on and on, but Maddie, those are, no, those are certainly the highlights. Thank you for not letting me conclude the episode and for sharing additional time so we could get through that. And if you're listening and you're in the advancement sector, I do think given the time of the release here in the sort of midst of the pandemic, um, it's going to take a while for a lot of this work to really get um, uh, uh, absorbed and I think then acted upon in the sector, but it was a monumental undertaking. I know Met, you know, countless uh, colleagues were involved directly or indirectly. And I'd encourage anybody just to even quickly Google um, the case global reporting standards, and you'll see a bunch of materials on cases website and, uh, and in uh, various news articles associated with that work. Um, so with that all said, Maddie, I will uh, want to wrap up uh, any closing thoughts or uh, for folks who want to stay in touch, what's the best way to do that? Uh, email is the best and I'm happy to field any emails. So please do reach out if, uh, if that's of interest. It's just M-E-Y-N-O-N at F-A-N-D-M dot E-D-U. And uh, I'm happy to receive an email and just be in touch with the colleagues. But, you know, thank you, uh, Brent, for, you know, for doing this today. It was a lot of fun. Um, as I know, it has been with lots of other extraordinary leaders that you've done this with. So um, it's a great service to our profession to have these kinds of podcasts done with, uh, with folks. So thank you. I just genuinely enjoy it and I've learned so much. And so on behalf of Evertrue and our Rays podcast community, merci. That's all I got. That's, I mean, that's as far as it goes. To totally fine. De rien. And as they say in the region of France where I grew up, instead of saying so long, we say adishat, which means uh, see you soon. With that, adishat. Thank you, Maddie. Thanks, Brent. Be well.